0: Is this on? Is this on? Oh, how dig. You know, in Passover feasts, like they always have an empty chair uh, during Passover for Elijah. I feel like we we'll always have these two empty rows, and I'm just gonna pretend you're trying to somehow remix that Jewish tradition versus not be near to me or thinking I have bad breath. Okay, but just so you know, we've actually commissioned some kids to stay in the back throughout the whole service to encourage you to move up towards the front to be here. And uh, the, the birds really helped that last Sunday, by the way. It was not that kind of crazy that we were not only like a sanctuary having a message about Sanctuary Night, we also became a bird sanctuary for this. So yesterday's message was brought to you by the... Uh, but welcome. Uh, my name's Jeff. I'm a... a, a, a Founding pastor, I guess, current lead pastor. Uh, Church is in a state of transition right now, which many people call the most uh, painful part of childbirth, but it's also very exciting to have children, and I'm really excited about the trajectory we are on. And for quite some time, we've been going through the book of Matthew. And we always try to, every year or so, touch base with an entire gospel. But I personally believe people should be wash, rinse, repeat on the Gospels all the time. Because for me, you know, a lot of people think Old Testament, New Testament. I kind of think Gospels and rest of the Bible. You have the Gospels and the rest of the Bible's kind of commentary on the Gospels. And you have the Gospels and I believe the whole Hebrew scriptures lead into the Gospels, right? So it gets complicated though. Because uh, the Bible is a library of 66 books. And you can cherry-pick from those books, and you can even uh, cut verses out of context in daisy-chain ch- quotes together or ignore the historical context to justify any kind of behavior you want to. And uh, the real cool thing about it is the Jesus bits aren't that complicated. The Jesus, if you read Matthew 5, 6, and 7, the Sermon on the Mount, There are very few things that will go over any of our heads. In fact, I think kids get it the best. And uh, that's why there's all these theological traditions, especially in America over the years, that have cropped up to explain why those three chapters don't really apply. Because they're so challenging and so simple. Um, So this, uh, what I do is I encourage people to read the Gospels. I did an experiment once where... I love audio Bibles, I love there's an app, the Bible app, and I listen here at double speed and they said people with ADD actually retain more listening to things quickly. So I did a thing where I listened to a every morning for like 90 days. And I loved it because every time something new stuck out to me. And I would just pace, actually I'd do it in this room, walk in circles the whole time because I don't like sitting down for a long period of time get deep leg thrombosis or something doing that, right? But uh, And there, uh, theologians throughout the early history of the church made a point of having all their studies of uh, the Old Testament scriptures be done in light of what they read in the Gospels in the Jesus story. And uh, that was a long tradition and uh, the Orthodox Church, Eastern Church, got really good at this. And, but eventually, um, that talent kind of faded away as a lot of other things kind of grabbed on and got caught within the church tradition. And we've been hurting for it ever since then. Because any, any scripture not read through the lens of Jesus has a chance of being really uh, distorted. And today's story we're going to read in Matthew, really, I mean, is Jesus actually warns us about this. And demonstrates it. But before I read it, I'm going to uh, say something about what's going on in Israel and read the first chapter of Isaiah. Because Isaiah is probably one of the most quoted books in the New Testament. And Isaiah makes for great binge reading. Some of it's not going to make sense, but the highlights will pop out to you, and it's You know, I once, I remember in high school, I did a thing where I just highlighted everything in Isaiah that sounded like Jesus, and every page was coded in ink. So, um, I want to read part of that, but just comment on Israel. A lot of you guys know Israel is a place that's been close to my heart, um, because it was a place where a real uh, uh, transition began in my life. Um... It was shortly after uh, my mom had passed away. I did the whole hitchhike around Europe and the Middle East. Pre-9-11, mind you. It was a lot easier. You, people could go see you off on your airplane and then walk off. And you didn't have to do the cavity checks and all that stuff. I mean, travel was pretty simple. And uh, I ended up spending a couple months in Israel. And stayed in the Arab, what's called the Arab Quarter of the Old City of Jerusalem. Where you don't know if that stucco is a thousand years old or... Thousand weeks old depending on what because they just kind of patch it up, and then I went camping uh, I hiking with Bedouin shepherds outside Jericho in the Wadi Kel I went on a, a big camping trip with uh, two Arabic guys in a Druze which is a kind of ethnic minority in uh, uh, Syria And Then I also stayed in the Jewish quarter for a while, so I heard a lot of stories because if you know me, I I interrogate people hopefully in a gentle way. I'm a story harvester, and I wanted to hear people's stories, and I hunt out with people who were like uh, uh, Jewish Zionists that wanted to see all the Palestinians out of that piece of land. I held, I I hunt out with a, a Palestinian cab driver whose son lost his eye with shot point-blank with like a rubber bullet. Um, and I, everything in between. And uh, the one thing I kind of, it struck me, is there's no good guys in this conflict. There's no good guys, but there's a whole lot of families suffering. In America, we have this kind of, we, 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 uh, there's been this tradition that kind of emerged in the uh, uh, early to mid-1800s that really caught on here where we would uh, kind of interpret like uh, modern Israel in the context of uh, biblical Israel and believe that uh, every bit of the covenants kind of applied stuff. There was a a lot of confusion, but basically it emerged to whatever Israel can do no wrong was actually the tradition of Christianity I grew up with, you know, and I saw everyone can do lots of wrong, Israel and Palestine, when I was there. And I realized there's salt of the earth on both sides and there's great evil on both sides. But the thing that struck me is what is it like to be a stateless Palestinian living in the West Bank where you're by walls, you can't even get outside without uh, 50 pages of paperwork and a lot of money to give your kid a life-saving surgery if they have a perforated heart. I mean, it's almost like house arrest in, in a, a state of apartheid. But I love my Jewish brothers and sisters in Israel, too, and I have a lot of friends that I made there. And to say is, on, we hear stories that are simplified to the point of being evil because they paint things in white hat and black hat instead of everyone need Jesusism, which is, by the way, that's our, that's our philosophy. everyone needs Jesusism, Prince of Peace, uh, we pray, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth is, is in heaven. And guess what? God's kingdom is the one that welcomes all nations, doesn't prefer one nation or another. So, um, you know, we, we've had estimates between a uh, hundred to a thousand people die. I think, I think those estimates only include uh, Israelis at this point, uh, the stats. But I just did some looking up. You know, we've had You know, 204 Palestinians killed in 2022, 319 in 2021. But if you just count from 2008, there's 6,207 Palestinians, non combatant civilians, have been killed in Israel. And we need to mourn that. We need to mourn every Jewish life that is lost in Israel because we love life and we love people. And, you know, Hate cannot cast out hate. Only love can do that. You know, MLK's kind of take on redacting the Gospels into a little uh, uh, pithy statement. So um, we cannot be a people that roots for a side because each salvo violence gives birth to more retaliatory violence. And the thing is, you can read the Old Testament to justify any kind of brutal retaliation or even preemptive violence. You can also read the Old Testament to say, we need to prioritize the fatherless, the widow, the alien, the stranger, and take care of the foreigner uh, among you and give sanctuary to all. Both stories can be pulled from the same collection of books. Um, I want to read Isaiah 1, uh, just a selection of verses from that to give you the idea of how one book begins to talk about the story. And the reason being, this will tie in to what Jesus calls the pollution of the Pharisees, the yeast of the Pharisees. When Jesus is confronting people who are expert storytellers that get it wrong, and he is telling a counter story. And I believe we see that counter story right in this passage. It says this, Lord, please bless the reading of your word. The vision concerning Judah and Jerusalem that Isaiah, son of Amos, saw during the reigns of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, king of Judah. Hear me, you heavens, listen, earth, for the Lord has spoken. I reared children and brought them up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its master, the donkey its owner's manger, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Woe to the sinful nation of people whose guilt is great. A brood of evildoers, children given to corruption. They have forsaken the Lord. They have spurned the Holy One of Israel, turned their backs on Him. Why should you be beaten anymore? Why do you persist in rebellion? Your whole head is injured. Your whole heart afflicted. From the sole of your foot to the top of your head, there's nothing. There's no soundness. Only wounds, welts, and festering sores. Not cleansed or bandaged or soothed with olive oil. Your country is desolate, your sit ci- this just hit me. It was like your cities burned with fire, your fields are being stripped by foreigners, right before you laid waste as when overthrown by strangers. Daughter Zion is left like a shelter in a vineyard, like a hut in a cucumber field, like a city under siege. This is an interesting comment on the Torah. You have one part of the Hebrew Scriptures saying something about another part of the Hebrew Scriptures. It says this, The multitude of your sacrifices, what are they to me? Says the Lord. I have more than enough of burnt offerings, of rams and the fat of fattened animals. I have no pleasure in the blood of bulls and lambs and goats. When you come to appear before me, who has asked this of you? This trampling of my courts. Stop bringing meaningless offerings. When you spread out your hands in prayer, I hide my eyes from you. When you offer many prayers, I'm not listening. Your hands are full of blood. Wash and make yourselves clean. Take your evil deeds out of my sight. Stop doing wrong. So thus far, we've got this huge rant Condemning Israel. And if we stop to this point, you know, we could maybe fill in the blanks of why were they being condemned? But just one more sentence here, you'll see a theme that is repeated over and over and over and over and over and over and over throughout the scriptures. So here's the antidote to all this: learn to do right, seek justice, defend the oppressed. Take up the cause of the fatherless. Plead the case of the widow. Come now, let's settle this matter, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they'll be white as snow. Though they are like crimson, they shall be like wool. If you're willing and obedient, you will eat the good things of the land. But if you resist and rebel, you'll be devoured by the sword. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. See how my faithful city has become unfaithful. She once was full of justice. Righteousness used to dwell in her. But now murderers. Your silver has become dross. Your choice wine is diluted with water. Your rulers are rebels, partners with thieves. They all love bribes, chase after gifts. Again, they do not defend the cause of the fatherless. The widow's case is not even brought before the authorities. And Isaiah kind of like continues uh, through the whole book like that with punctuated parts of, but here comes uh, a Messiah who's going to suffer. So the idea is Israel isn't looking out after the suffering. By the way, a lot of Israel's enemies are just as bad. God's not taking sides here. You know, you'll see that in in the prophets too. And God is sending a suffering servant who not through, even at times we we describe the power of the suffering servant using military metaphors, right? To show how muscular the power of the suffering servant is. This is also in Revelation. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah. And then I looked and I saw a baby lamb. Revelation interpreted in one sentence the lion is a lamb. You know, when we read the violent imagery, we're supposed to see the power of violence, but the twist ending, the surprise ending, the the thing that makes us unique from every story that is told is that muscular, strenuous, indomitable power is through love and an embrace of suffering to engage suffering in the the, pleading for the least vulnerable. Um... I mourn like all the babies, all the families, all the moms and dads, even all the, the military folks on both sides, their lives are being lost. Despair gives birth to despair gives birth to despair. And I don't, I mean, this took us all by surprise, and I, you know, with this and all the other wars going around. Remember, folks, we are the people of peace. We're going to an election year. People say uh, the Bible's not political. Actually, the Bible's very political if you say polis is the city. Polis policy is the policy of how an organized group of people, the policies of care for one another. Uh, It's just policy towards people so everyone's political because we all have ideas of what policies should be towards people. Partisanship is whether you're a brown or a Bengal. Partisanship is my team Lift up. Your team annihilate. Partisanship, I don't think, like, if you ever are really gun ho about any party, you're naive, because everyone, every party's got a rear end. Some stink more than others, depending on the decade we're in, right? If you're not holding your note, we have an election coming up, and we have a year of incredible division that's going to be hard for this church and other churches, I just want to encourage you, we are royalists and we love our enemies, whoever you may think they are. So even if you think someone's the enemy, we're never on the side of violence, we're on the side of sacrifice, amen? And that keys right into Matthew. Can I invite our readers up, Matthew 1 through 12? And we're, oh, I should have warned. Oops, I turned it off. Here Here we go. Jamie and Josephine Boyd. Morning. Sisters. Sure,
1: sure. Matthew 16, 1-12, this is the New Living Translation. One day the Pharisees and Sadducees came to
0: test Jesus, demanding that he show them a miraculous sign from heaven to prove his authority. He replied, You know the saying, red sky at night means fair weather tomorrow. Red sky in the morning means foul weather all day. You know how to interpret the weather signs in the sky, but you do not know how to interpret the signs of the times. Only an evil, adulterous generation would demand a miraculous sign. But the only sign I will give them is the sign of the prophet Jonah. Then Jesus left them and went away.
1: Later, after they had crossed to the other side of the lake, the disciples discovered that they had forgotten to bring any bread. "'Watch out,' Jesus warned them, "'Beware of the yeast of the Pharisees and Sadducees.' At this, they began to argue with each other because they hadn't brought any bread. Jesus knew what they were saying, so he said, "'You have so little faith. Why are you arguing with each other about having no bread?' Don't you understand even yet? Don't you remember the 5,000 I fed with five loaves and the baskets of leftovers you picked up? Or the 4,000 I fed with seven loaves and the large baskets of leftovers you picked up? Why can't you understand that I'm not talking about bread? So I say again, beware of the yeast of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Then, at last, they understood that he wasn't speaking about the yeast in bread, but about the deceptive teaching of Pharisees and Sadducees. The word of the Lord.
0: Thank you. Thank you much. So, I love it. Uh, Jesus is approached by the Pharisees. His, you know, the guys always try to trap him in debates. And Jesus just doesn't play their game. As usual. Uh, Jesus... Uh, says a couple words to them, jets off, and then seriously warns. He warns uh, his disciples, hey, don't let the deal these guys have infect you. Don't let—ideas are infectious, right? Bad ideas are infectious. We've seen literally the more that people—for instance, let's, let's look at white supremacy. The more public people are in uh, speaking— of their hatred or their superiority that they think they're better. You know, the more white supremacists open their mouth, the more people who become white supremacists. It's true. People say, "No, this just revealed what was always inside." I said, "Well, you know, there's been a lot of kids that were born in the last several years that are already learning this." So, it, it bad ideas and good ideas are viral. It's why the news doesn't report on suicides because they realize the more you report on it, the more people see it as an option. Bad ideas and toxic ideas are infectious. And they're like an organism of sorts. That's why I really think uh, Richard Dawkins' work on talking about the meme and the idea of a contagious, evolving idea can change reality. He's dead on about that. I think he's he a little misguided on some other things. But I really uh, buy into that idea. So Jesus, these guys demand him for a sign. I just... This is a passage of Scripture I just have run through pretty quickly. Yeah, the Pharisees, haters gonna hate. Next part, oh, this is a great p- part about Peter and Jesus, and Peter knows what's up. But I've always kind of rolled past this passage, and when I was uh, reading, it, thought, man, gotta really highlight this one, because something struck me. How did they approach Jesus? How did they approach Jesus? Um, they were asking, for, actually, they were demanding a sign, they were demanding proof and verification of Jesus' credentials. They were not approaching Jesus saying, hey, I'm, 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 I'm Pharisee Ezekiel, and here's my little boy. He's sick. Will you please show your lordship by healing my son? They were not bringing anyone. There's no mention of anyone suffering. We want a sign. And we know the signs of Jesus were very they were stories within themselves. Jesus just didn't like, show what his power rating was in a specific area by doing something so people could fill out, fill out their Messiah chart. He, you know, he would heal lepers by breaking the law and hug them, touch them. You know, he would touch lepers. He would do long-distance healings on behalf of enemies of the state of Israel. I mean, Jesus always had a compassion story in every healing he did and when they come to them already not only do we know that they missed the mark on what Jesus was doing they betrayed their ignorance of the very beginning story of Israel because the beginning story or secret origin of Israel it's not it's in Genesis it's not too much of a secret but the secret origin of Israel is this i want to take an god takes an elderly and fertile couple that were living in desolation because by ancient world standards, their whole line was going to die. He says, I want to make you a nation. First thing we do is going to make you poor. You're going to be nomads. You're going to spend some time in slavery. you got to leave all your real estate behind. And he invited an elderly couple to a downwardly mobile journey and said this, through your story, I'm going to raise up a person that will bless all people groups of the world. Through your seed, singular, all ethnic groups will be blessed. At the very beginning was blessing. The story of Israel is blessing. And the Pharisees who were the keepers of that story, in a place where they didn't have modern medicine, you didn't have to go far to see someone that was suffering something. They didn't bring a suffering person for Jesus to prove his power. They just demanded a trick. They wanted a sign. And this already shows, when they think Messiah, they're not thinking healing. They're not thinking compassion. And what we later on see, if you see more throughout the scriptures, is um, Israel is occupied by the enemy. And the predominant story one way or another is God needs to come and Messiah is going to annihilate our enemies violently. So they highlighted all the parts in the scripture where the power of God is described using violent imagery and kind of skipped over the welcoming, the alien, and the stranger bits. Does that sound familiar? Does that sound familiar? That's a trope, by the way. So they skip over that and they, they read it selectively. And so Jesus... Uh, isn't motivated to give people proof. He's motivated to live a story that hurting people say, that's my story. You know, you could be, if you were a superior teacher of the law who had a sense of social power and gravitas because you could win a debate with people, Jesus held nothing, no attraction for you. But if you were being abused, you would run towards Jesus. In this patriarchal culture, women were comfortable with Jesus. I say, a woman across racial boundaries who was hated probably by her community felt safe around Jesus. One thing when you read the words of Jesus, always remember is who felt safe to approach him and then hear that tone of voice in his teachings. You ever have shame voice reading Jesus? Do you ever read Jesus with shame voice? It's, it's, it's just really bad, like, uh, you know, character acting or whatever. Because if you see it, you know how Jesus talked based on who felt comfortable to talk to Jesus. And people would illegally trespass to have a conversation with him. So that's the tone that Jesus—that's my Jesus. That's not the American Jesus. That's a Jesus, 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 Jesus. But um, they asked for sign— so the first point here is we always approach Jesus with compassion or with a need for compassion or both. Whenever we approach Jesus, we approach Jesus with a lot of things. But one element is either we need compassion or Lord, show your compassion to someone else. If we ever approach Jesus outside of those two things, so another story has infected us. And God, I don't know, I, we need compassion. You know, uh, not everyone thinks they need compassion. That's delusional, and there's actually pages on the DSM-5 for that. All right? But the reality is everyone who has some level of self-awareness knows we need compassion. You know, God, God sees us all behind closed doors. And God knows that we all, every day we interact with a human, we interact with someone who needs the compassion of God. The Pharisees, and the signs of God always involve compassion. And what we see here is people who aren't even thinking compassion. They're thinking of debating, winning an argument, owning someone. And you know, anyone could, by the way, here, if you ever want to win a debate, just have the most stamina. You know, have, have, a, have a bottle of Adderall. When you get tired, take another one and another one, and you can debate as long as you want. And eventually, someone's going to say, okay, you win. So that, that's how you— Now, that's not how you win formal debates in school or presidential debates. I'm just saying if you want to change the world by arguing on the Internet, you can do that. Um, but point one, we all— the Jesus people always approach Jesus with compassion, either wanting it or wanting it to be given. Um, secondly, we see here, uh, Jesus talks, Jesus talks to the Pharisees, and he says something kind of funny. He says, like, hey, hey, teachers of law, hey, Ivy League scholars of Israel, uh, you're better meteorologists than you are. Like Bible teachers. You guys are much better, you know, uh, red moon at night, sailor's delight. You got that, but you don't know diddly about the signs that you're asking for. He's basically saying, you wouldn't know the kingdom of God if it came and bit you on the rear end. You know which way the wind blows, but you do not know which way the spirit blows. I mean, Jesus is bringing out, Jesus, he, this is not Jesus debating, by the way. This is Jesus saying, I can't even begin to play your game. It's such a boring and worthless game. Jesus isn't going to play the own someone game. Jesus, isn't, Jesus already skips to the end of these arguments. He knows they don't bring anything. But he says something. And the gospel is in this little piece. He says, all you're going to get is the sign of Jonah. You know, Jonah story of Jonah is a grumpy dude who didn't want God to forgive people and God forgave the foreigners anyway who were doing bad things and Jonah gets mad and has a fit so he begins to get a sunburn God gives him a little canopy you know the canopy dies and Jonah's upset and it's, it's, it's kind of a comic book it, I mean, not a comic book but it's a comedy like Hebrew scholars laugh you're supposed to laugh at how ridiculous the story is uh, but, but the whole but the sign of Jonah isn't about the, government. the sign of Jonah is, I'm going down for three days and then I'm coming back. You don't want to read too much in it because Jesus is not resurrected with whale vomit. But the idea is you're going to get a sign. And what was the sign? It points to the story. It says, the sign is suffering and resurrection. The sign, the winning argument is Jesus wins. The argument to end all arguments is we're not about winning over someone else. We're about suffering to win. We're not about taking to win, we're about outgiving to win. We're not about out hating to win, we're about loving those who hate. It's this reversal, and because all the early witnesses of the resurrection of Christ, the vast majority of them died with his name on their lips, refusing to say, oh, I just made it up, because they believed if Jesus comes back from the cross, we are good. We're going to be all right. And you look at uh, those early witnesses of the resurrection, that was the sign. And here's the good news, by the way. In church history, we know this a lot of Pharisees got with the program after the resurrection. It wasn't the end story. Like we see the first words, we see Nicodemus kind of come around in the Gospel of John. A lot of the Pharisees became like late to the game. Can you imagine being a Pharisee scholar being discipled by a barely literate fishermen? That is so funny. I mean, uh, that's like me going to OSU and trying to school uh, a physicist on quantum theory. You know, it's just, God is so weird. Anyway, um, so the the second point, first, we always come to Jesus' compassion. A second, our response to every argument is to lose. Our response to every argument is to lose by the world's standards by the world standards. That doesn't mean, and by the way, that doesn't mean stay in a codependent relation forever and let someone abuse you and be a doormat. No. It says, be willing to hurt because you're differentiated from toxicity. Be willing to suffer because you are connected with Jesus and you take after him while being connected to people, some who are not like Jesus. And instead of Touching illness, you get sick. You touch illness, they get healed. And that's the story. of Suffering, not because you're embracing toxicity, but because amidst toxicity, you are connected to the suffering Jesus. And resurrection is a promise. But final point is, if we do not read the scriptures through the lens of Jesus— We will be deceived, we will be deceptive, and we will do harm. We will be deceived, we will be deceptive, and we will do harm. And, you know, when I think of what is anti-Christian, like things, when I was growing up and I went to a religious school and things were, this is anti-Christian, that and the other. It was always sex, drugs, rock and roll, and whatever, what heavy metal band was saying this, or Marilyn Manson. He went around them, but you get the picture, Right. And really, Antichrist is something people think is all Jesus that is against Jesus. So the Bible talks about the spirit of Antichrist. What is the spirit of Antichrist? Read Matthew 5, 6, and 7. Anyone says that they follow Jesus and are against anything in those three chapters is the spirit of Antichrist, and you don't have to be a scholar. You know, people who—I I have a great deal of acquaintances and friends who disloathe Christians— in our nation, love Christianity, and they act like somehow I, I may be some mutant outlier. I said, no, you just got to get, get, get around the world here a little bit. And I say this, okay, just do me a favor. I, I, I will get your coffee for a week. Just do this. Read Matthew 5, 6, and 7 and tell me which part you hate the most. What's the biggest load of BS in Matthew 5, 6, and 7? People re- it's pretty impressive. You're like, man, if this is true, I could get behind this. Um, I've heard different versions of that statement many times. Um, Jesus warned disciples, watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees. And what the yeast is, the yeast is something that overtakes bread. You have flat bread. This little contaminant that we like generally, but follow the metaphor, this little contaminant will go into the bread, infect the bread, and the whole bread will rise. The whole bread will rise. The, whole, the contaminant will go through it. Something so small can transform the very nature of that. In the same way, the contaminant of the way the Pharisees read the Bible, apart from compassion, in the contaminant of the way the Pharisees interacted with the Scripture that justified their nationalism, the way that they interacted with Scripture that gave them, meant that they could walk past suffering, injured people and not think a thing of it, the way they interacted with him, they were they were infected by that idea of where they had selective reading in the Old Testament. And Jesus said, be careful. And the disciples, they're tired. They got low blood sugar. They don't always tell. He goes, oh, who, who forgot? Who, who, who brought the bread? I didn't bring the bread. Do you bring the bread? And Jesus like, guys, stop it. I'm, this is a metaphor here. I'm doing the whole parable thing, okay? You know I do that. So, parable time. It's just beware the yeast of the Pharisees. It says the deception of the Pharisees. And what was the deception? It doesn't, I mean, we see it throughout the whole of Matthew's gospel, but right here, the deception is their approach to Jesus for a sign. It wasn't, heal my son. It was, prove yourself. Let's stand. Guys, uh, we are going to be surrounded by people retelling the stories and retweeting or Xing the stories or TikToking the stories of people who've been infected by the yeast of the Pharisees and read the scriptures as another weapon in their culture war. And it's going to be discouraging and heartbreaking. And some of you, that will be your family members. And just remember... Your family members are so precious to Jesus along with everyone else who's been infected by the yeast of the Pharisees. And think of all the Pharisees that eventually came around to Jesus and asked that they may have a later conversion to the fun that Jesus really invites us to. I just want to say, uh, I want to invite uh, the communion folks forward and the prayer folks to go to the sides. Um... just want to pray a re-surrender. Maybe you would call it a pledge of allegiance. Uh, guys, uh, I want to encourage you to pray with me. Some would call this the sinner's prayer, salvation prayer. You know, I pray sinner prayers all the time personally, and I want more and more salvation every day. But some of you, this may even be a first time of surrendering, but I'm going to say, I'm going to pray this for me, and you can enter within the spirit of this if you like. Father God, I've given my allegiance. Every time I hate, I've gone out of my allegiance to you. God, every time that I, uh, I take sides instead of intercede for all, I I de-pledge allegiance, God, and I want to pledge allegiance to you, God. God, confess that even on an individual level, uh, my way of doing things my default is not your compassion and my default is not your generosity my default is not your forgiveness and my default is not to love my enemies God I confess all the sins that fall under those umbrellas past present future say cleanse me from them God you know make, take those toxins and those viral ideas cleanse me from them Father I pray for your forgiving grace Lord, I come to you saying, please make me a recipient of your compassion, and Lord, make me a vessel of that compassion. Lord, all that my life is and all that it isn't, all my strengths, all my limitations, and every ounce of my story and story to come, I give to you and ask you to make something of it.